This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. Let's go to Theses 29 and 30, which I don't think I have, I, don't, I didn't have you read those. Um, but they're interesting, at least in thinking about this relationship between the various kinds of merit that we have before God. Um, because what, what, would prepare, what would you do to prepare yourself for grace in the Occamist model? Do what's in you. Yeah, you do what is in you, what's there. So you're trying to do meritorious works to prepare yourself for grace. What is the Alchemist model? It, it, it's, I mean, it's, that, it's what we just talked about a little earlier where it's um, you're free to do anything that you can um, and that God can choose or not to value it. Yeah. Uh, so Luther's move here is to take preparation for grace out of your person and in Thesis 29 to move it to election. Um, yeah. Do you think it would be improper to apply this to kind of, I think what Zach was talking about a minute ago, but the whole like behavioralism that we kind of tend to lean towards, like, okay, I know you don't really want to obey, but start to, and then, you know, you, it, you might pick up on it, and it might grow on you, and, you know, God will be kind to you, and then he'll give you, like, kind of like, where there's a will, there's a way, like, will yourself to do it even if you don't want. Obey God even if you don't want to, and then... Uh, suddenly you'll actually start to want to over time. Yeah. It's good. Is this, you think it's... Which is very Aristotelian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's that, that term from Aristotle where you're trying to develop a habitus. Like you're yeah. trying to develop a, a way of being. You're, you're, you're cultivating your, yourself and your interior life. Yeah, to... Fake it until you make it. Yeah, exactly. So you think it would be proper to apply this thing right here against that, you know, that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, okay. I mean, sort of writ large across the disputation against scholastic theology is that Aristotle is the worst. <laughs> um, He's the bad guy. 40, 41. <laughs> Virtually the entire ethics of Aristotle is the worst enemy of grace. <laughs> so it was not an overstatement to say Aristotle is the worst. Yeah. He actually says so. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it says, and in, in, in 44, indeed, no one can become a theologian without becoming one with Aristotle, which is, what do you make of that, though? Wait, wait, which one is that? 44. 44. 44. It just makes sense. <laughs> well, is he saying? Is he saying the professional theologian in our era? Yes, that's what he's saying. That's got The professional it. theologian must be familiar with Aristotle in order to actually be a in theologian. Okay. Is he being a little provocative by using the phrase "becoming one"? Like, is he trying to like using? That'd be more bibliosexual language. That'd be more. Uh, <laughs> is he being like Luther cheeky here? Um. 43 says it's an error. I, I probably wouldn't say that he's okay. got sexual overtones to this. Yeah. Uh, mostly because I'm not confident of the Latin, what the Latin would be behind right. this. Um, it, it is interesting. I mean, the problem with Aristotle's ethics, of course, is that Aristotle says if you want to be a builder, 
you practice the things that you do to become a builder. You work on your skills and tools, and that's how you become a builder. Um, and of course, with this whole good tree, bad tree thing, that's exactly the kind of view that Luther is trying to overturn. You don't first cultivate a habitus and then work out of that. You are given this new status and this new identity um, by God. Um, but we can... Do you have something? No, no, sorry. We can uh, exonerate Aristotle a little bit. Because in Thesis 50 it says briefly... <laughs> Briefly, the whole Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light. Um, <laughs> which you have to love a statement like that. But in Thesis 51, it says, it is truly doubtful whether the Latin speakers comprehended the correct meaning of Aristotle. Um, because if you keep reading Luther, and we'll get to this when we get to the distinction between active and passive righteousness, it's that you get all these scholastics who are basically trying to say, Aristotle describes how we get passive righteousness, which is the righteousness before God. You work for it. But when he's talking about active righteousness, the way we live in the world, um, Luther is perfectly fine with saying Aristotle's ethics are great. Like if you want to know how to live in the world, read, read Aristotle. He's perfectly fine there. Um, he is just being roped into a discussion that he doesn't belong in. Aristotle. Aristotle is, yeah. Um, if we'll keep chugging along, let's see. The next ones were, uh, we've already talked a little bit about Thesis 55 and 56. Um, if there are no, are there any questions about those? Um, if not, we'll go on to Theses 79 and 80, which are at the bottom of page 6. Um, just tell me what you think is going on here. It says, Condemned are all, are all those who do the works of the law. Blessed are all those who do the works of the grace of God. I think it's just contrasting works with grace. Right. Um, what are... What are the works of grace that you think he has in view, though? Well, is he talking about the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church? Surely not, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm open to being wrong <laughs> all the time, but uh, I, don't, I don't think that is in view. The works of grace are anything that grace, which is living, active, and operative, mm. does. Yeah. This is back to, like, man is mule. You said that earlier. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're not masters of our own actions, even a great phrase. Right. 39, we are not masters of our own actions from beginning to end of servants. So we're a servant of grace. So we're being ridden by grace, as you would say later. Yeah. We do something. That's the work of grace. So do you think the distinction between DC 79 and 80 showed that does that seem to be more evidence that Luther is still kind of in this frame of thought where there's it still works. Yeah, and, there, and it's specifically works infused by grace. Hmm. Infused is going to be word here. Yeah. yeah. Is that what most people say is going on here? You still got lingering yeah. theological Church. concupiscence? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Way to adapt the concept. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I, I, think that, I think that's it. This is a, a good example of how he's pushing out of 
what he's learning or what he has been taught, uh, but he's also still not fully broken out of that frame of mind yet. Um, the last set of theses I, I had us read is 89 and 90, which this sort of gets a little bit more towards your questions about, I think, nature and grace. Um, this says in 89, grace as a mediator is necessary to reconcile the law with the will. The grace of God is given for the purpose of directing the will, lest it err even in loving God. Grace has to be under the concupiscence somehow and push the will. Something under the will is where grace needs to go for it to do its work. Yeah. So what's interesting about this, I think just depending on how you define grace, right? Because an argument I actually use a lot of times when people try to give me a, a free will defense is I say, you know, actually, it's, it's a common... Grace precedes faith in almost every major theological system until Arminius. Even in Roman Catholicism, grace precedes faith. It's just that grace has a mediator. Grace has its own mediation in the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. For Luther, Calvin, followers, grace was really was not mediated. It was just purely the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so it's a modern Roman Catholic wouldn't disagree with what Luther is saying as far as grace preceding will or grace preceding faith. They just they give it mediation, whereas Luther didn't, right? I think I think I get what you're saying, um, and it sounds it sounds like that's on the right basic path. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure what a, a modern Catholic response would be to these theses necessarily because they just get overlooked whenever you're studying Luther. Um, because if you're a Roman Catholic wanting to be in dialogue with Luther, you're just going to go towards um, the later stuff. Right. Um, I guess what I'm saying is for Luther, grace is the mediator. For Roman Catholic, the seven sacraments mediate grace. Yeah, but grace could also, it could be a provenient grace to put Armenian language on it. Or, right. Or there could be other sort of special graces which are given to even bring you to a place where you would then avail yourself of the merits of the church to right. receive the full grace of God. That's one thing. So I think, I think it's pretty complicated. I've always heard it. Because then just, there's, no, there's no clarity. There's no assurance. There's no certainty. Right. There's always the sense of the church being able to dispense merit. And that's one of the things he's always Luther is trying to clarify. Maybe maybe with that blunt axe, maybe too rough sometimes, but trying to bring some clarity, some assurance, some certainty. Is that right? The auxiliary graces and all that stuff that gets really concluded here in scholasticism, that's where it just gets so wound up. One would emphasize this, another, you know, Beale would be here, Ockham would be here, yeah. the Germans here, the English here, everybody's kind of having their own little flavor. Yeah, because in the Catholic thought of that time, there would be so many kinds of yeah. grace, yeah. Like, I mean, there's just thousands of them. Yeah. That's not true. There are scores. 
there, there's, yeah, there's a bunch. And the Reformation, in a lot of ways, is funneling that into the one concept of grace. Yep, yep. What's the one word? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and Luther's starting to do this yep. here, but he's still yet to move away from this idea of an infusion. Um, How much is he, I was kind of talking about this with Dave a little bit, based on his language, grace as substance versus grace as capital P person? I mean, you see, like when he's talking about the grace of God is in 55, it's a living and active and operative spirit. Yeah. And then in 89, grace as a mediator. You know, is it moving from just being sort of this substance that God gives to someone to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the one Equal God? Grace. Yeah, they, they, are the, they are people. Grace is a person mm. and uh, grace is God. You know what I mean? Right. Is he, is that there? Am I trying to press too hard into what he's doing? Well, look at thesis 75. Um, it says the grace of God, however, makes justice abound through Jesus Christ. True. Because it causes one to be pleased with the law. Um, so we're, we are not yet, I believe, we're on the way there yeah. to where grace is capital P person in the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not all, it's not who God is. God isn't doing who He is yet. Yeah. Grace is in some way still yeah. a bit of a shadowy substance. You know, Zinda realized we, we, he doesn't use the word gospel anywhere here or in uh, the 95 Theses or even in the Heidelberg. That's probably not until like 1520 and all when he starts to think of the declarative. Oh, that's his tower experience which is somewhere in here but he's not talking about the gospel yet. The declaration of forgiveness of sins. Yeah, and yeah. once we wrap this up, we'll finish the little history of Luther, and it's really in about 1518 where he, where he starts to get that. Yeah, it's not in Heidelberg, though. He doesn't talk about the gospel. He talks about Jesus Christ and the cross. Mm. Yeah, not in that terminology, at least. Yeah. That was my own little tape playing in the back of my head. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that he used gospel in the 95 Theses, but... He might have. We'll look at it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so, are there any lingering thoughts or questions or concerns about the disputation against scholastic theology? Anything that you would want to discuss about this? Um, is there a, a form that matches content? Um, in other words, is it... He's using, utilizing theses. Mm-hmm. Uh, would the scholastics have debated in a different way, and therefore the way he debated was also kind of carrying his content in a better way? Scholastics were all about disputations. Okay. Um, so that, that, that would have been the thing he would have been formed in, is disputation, theses, syllogisms, um, setting these things out for debate. And that's kind of the thing that they said, you know, when he was growing up, he was very good at this. Um, disputations die off a little bit because Melanchthon and a lot of the other guys are humanists and they don't like this form of debate. It's too... Like, Which is why Luther never wrote a systematic but Melanchthon did. And then, yeah, yeah, it points to the difference. Yeah. Interesting. Sure. Um, and there's kind of this big gap in Luther's career you know, we, we see by the time of the antinomian disputations, he's obviously getting back to that form. Um, or at least the interlocutors are using the syllogism. Yeah. But it definitely 
drops off a little bit. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.